I can enjoy it. Cabbage Town neighborhood of Toronto, you find a great Victorian cemetery called the Necropolis, from the Greek for City of the Dead. Since I was old enough to play outside and stray from home, I've enjoyed visiting cemeteries. As I get older and death is less an abstraction, I have to wonder if I will even allow my remains to end up in one of these places. I rarely visit the cemeteries where my loved ones are interred though not because I don't think of them or love them less with time's passing. There seems to me little reason to have to visit a stone marker in a field of stone markers if one wants to contemplate the departed. I can do that wherever I am. And do. But maybe this attitude misses a larger point that the tombstones also serve to remind the world of a person's existence, and in an almost stylized, abbreviated fashion, tells their story when in most cases no one else would do so for them. In the early 90s, I lived in Cabbage Town for a few months and walked through the necropolis often. One section I kept returning to falls below the level of most of the grounds, winding down a hill and around to the right as the land slopes toward the Don Valley. This dog leg is called Section X. The plots there are divided, each section named for a letter of the alphabet, but this one seems a fitting name as its drop in altitude and visibility makes it just a little more mysterious. And it was there I came across a series of stones that intrigued me. Hidden from sight, probably not visited by family in years, I read the stones engraved with the names of over a dozen servicemen, each of whom perished in the fall of 1918. As a fan of history, the grandson of a survivor at the Battle of Vimy Ridge, and someone who has essentially made storytelling his métier, this grabbed me by the lapels and would not let go. My first thought was, why are they here? Most of the stones marked these men as airmen, and I perhaps mistakenly assumed that meant that they were pilots in the young Royal Air Force. I also assumed they had been brought back to Canada for burial by their families at war's end. But what really sparked my imagination was the timeline. Nine of these men, aged 18 to 40, died within two weeks of one another, beginning mid-October 1918. The Great War would end on November 11th of 1918, ending the four bloodiest years of conflict ever. Had they all been victims of a final surge of activity, participants in one giant battle on the Western Front as both sides struggled to end a stalemate that had lasted pretty much since 1914? And were all of these men killed over France and Belgium in those early flying machines, outfitted with machine guns but no parachutes, perhaps in dogfights with the Imperial German Air Force, or brought down by anti-aircraft guns. It was a terrible image either way, but frankly, kind of romantic. 
and as it turned out, completely wrong. Keen on learning more about what had happened to these men, in 1993 I wrote to the Department of Veterans Affairs in Ottawa asking if they could point me in the right direction. This was, after all, a little before the ubiquity of the Internet. A letter came back from the Commemoration Committee, suggesting the story I was pursuing might not be as glamorous as I had hoped. Two photocopied pages from a book, I never knew which, listed the names and details of each man buried in the necropolis who died during the war. There are, in fact, 34 of them. The Veterans Affairs agent told me they had likely died in Canada, as the fallen are traditionally buried with their comrades overseas. Of the 34 listed, only one seems to have died in a plane. Lieutenant Edward Gordon Hanlon, aged 28, died in August 1917 as the result of an aeroplane accident. I had read a few books on the British and Canadian airmen of World War I and knew that in the early days of flight far more men were killed in training accidents than in combat. But what about the others? Well, that book on these 34 men tells us just one, Lieutenant Hanlon, died in an accident, and six list no cause of death. The other 27 died of disease. 27 out of 34. Thysis took two of them, that's an old term for tuberculosis, and what is listed generically as sickness killed seven more. Of the remaining 18, six died of flu and 12 of pneumonia. In the 21st century, the idea of Canadians dying of flu and pneumonia might seem a bit odd. Only no, we still do. Influenza and pneumonia still rank in the top ten of our causes of death. But when these men were buried, medicine could hardly have been called modern. Even the discovery of penicillin was still a decade away. Surprising, too, then, was that so many more died of pneumonia than the flu. Flu is a term we today tend to use interchangeably with a common cold, but the two are not the same. The erroneously named Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 was a strain of bird flu, thought to have spread from birds to pigs and from pigs to humans. The first reported case was actually on an army base in Kansas, not Spain, in March of 1918. Within a month, it was all over North America and had reached Europe as well. Worldwide, at least 20 million people died from it. But that's the low end of the estimates. Some say 40 million, some say 50, some say 100. Putting that in context, the total number of military deaths on both sides of the war over four years? About 17 million. The Spanish flu killed more people across the globe in one year and it was a particularly nasty death, more akin to what we've heard of medieval plagues than the run-of-the-mill flu of our time. For such a prolific killer, we don't hear much today about the Spanish flu. It plays a central role in stage productions, 1918 by Horton Foote and Kevin Kerr's Unity, 1918, but there are a few treatments of it on film. And given that the early symptoms of the flu might have presented as pneumonia to anyone not alert to the coming pandemic, I suspect that of our 34, more than just those six servicemen were its victims. Unlike most flus which do their damage to the very young, the very old, and the sick, 
the Spanish flu attacked those in the prime of life, people in their twenties and thirties at their most active and healthiest. We do get a glimpse of who these men were, though. Private R. A. Thompson of Beaverton, Ontario, was just sixteen when Thysus took him in 1916, leaving behind his widowed mother. How he got in the service at that age isn't mentioned. Airman Third Class Glenn Uden died of the flu at age 26. He left his parents behind in Vancouver. And Sergeant Robert Barnes Kirkland died of pneumonia at age 39, leaving his wife and mother in Manchester, England. I had thought I'd stumbled upon a gripping and tragic tale of heroism and self-sacrifice. I had, but it wasn't the one I expected. And it made me a little ashamed that I might have been looking for something else, when in fact what happened to these men is as epic as anything I was imagining. There are gravestones and cenotaphs in every town and city of this country, and it is astounding to put names to what had only been figures, to put stories to those names. I was right about this. They, most of them, died within sight of the war's finish line. They were heroic. It was tragic. And I am drawn to the book's shortest entry. Private Frank Bickers of the 1st Central Ontario Regiment. Died of sickness February 1919. Nothing about family or where he was from. He saw the end of the war and died three months later. A private at age 44. The age I am now. Here are the young men Watch from the wings as the seas were replayed. We saw ourselves now as we never had Pretty Much, Episode 1, The 34, written and read by Scott Clarkson, theme music by Garner Firebird, with an appearance by Joy Division. <laughs>